What did you pray for the last time you were in a difficult situation? Probably one of the requests you prayed is for that difficult situation to come to an end. Kind of a, a normal thing to pray, not a bad thing to pray. God, whatever it is that's going on, it's difficult, that's hard, this trial, Lord, help me to get through that. We pray it come to a close. It's a, it's a normal thing to, to pray. But how do you cope when that trial doesn't end quickly? When that trial goes on for another week or another month or another year? What about 20 years? Jacob's trial lasted 20 years. We're going to be in the book of Genesis this morning. We'll look at Jacob and him suffering under Laban. 20 years of laboring, of waiting, having already received the promise from God that God was with them, that God would keep him, that God would protect him and watch over him, that, that God would see to it that he would return back to the promised land. Yet 20 years of, of working and, and waiting. You know, we often pray for those trials, either for us to be able to avoid those trials or for them to quickly come to an end, which again, it's not a bad thing to pray for that trial to come to an end, but could we consider that God has a greater purpose for His people in our suffering than we may realize at first? You know, consider how often it is in your life that God's used a season of of difficulty or a season of, of suffering as the pathway to blessing, the pathway to knowing Him more. I was reading from the Bishop J.C. Ryle this week, and he had this to say about how God uses trials and difficulties in the lives of Christians to help strengthen our faith. He said, we shall find that all work for our good when we reach heaven. Let these thoughts abide in our minds if we love growth and grace. When days of darkness come upon us, let us not count it as a strange thing. Rather, let us remember that lessons are learned on such days which would never have been learned in sunshine. Let us say to ourselves, this also is for my profit, that I may be a partaker of God's holiness. It is sent in love. I am in God's best school. Correction is instruction. This is meant to make me grow. As those who put our faith in Jesus Christ... We can trust that God is with us in our trials, that God is sovereignly at work in all of our trials. We are often caught off guard, caught by surprise from the difficulties we face, but God never is. He's reigning and ruling sovereignly over every trial, and He gives the strength that we as His people need to spiritually prosper, to persevere, and to find peace in Him in every trial. Well, today in Genesis, we see the hardship that Jacob endured under Laban and his harsh rule. It comes to an end after 20 years. His trial lasted that long, and we see that God was with him the whole time, blessing him. We're going to make our way through the end of Genesis 30 and all of Genesis 31 this morning. And as we get started, I want to give you the main idea of this message. So if you're taking notes, here's the main idea. In every trial... We can trust God to give us prosperity, perseverance, and peace. In every trial, we can trust God to give us prosperity, perseverance, and peace. 
We're going to look at the end of chapter 30 today and all of chapter 31. And since this is a long passage, I'm going to divide this into three sections, and we'll take this one at a time rather than reading through the whole passage at the beginning. Turn with me, if you haven't already done so, to Genesis chapter 30. We're going to start in verse 25, which is where we left off last Sunday. That's found on page 24 in your pew Bible. If you want to use that pew Bible, that's a good way to stay engaged this morning. Page 24, we're going to start off in Genesis chapter 30 in verse 25. Let me read for us, starting there in verse 25, and I'll end in 43. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord had blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me, for you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Well, as we make our way through this passage, I, I want us to consider this morning three ways that God blesses His people in trials. And, and the first way that we see that God blesses His people in trials is there in verses 25 through 43. God's blessing brings prosperity. God's blessing brings prosperity. Well, God had promised to be with Jacob to bring him back safely to the promised land, and he had spent 14 years away from home, 
laboring as a, a servant of Laban after being deceived. Now, Jacob was a servant. He wasn't an owner. Everything that he'd been serving Laban for belonged to Laban. So how was he going to go back home and be able to provide for his own family? He doesn't own anything. How will he become a great nation if he can't provide for his wives and his, his kids? And at the beginning of chapter 30, we saw last week that God was building Jacob's family. At the end of chapter 30, we see God building Jacob's fortune. We read in verse 25 that quickly after the birth of Joseph, Jacob is ready to go home. And starting here and into chapter 31, we see Jacob's exit from the land of Haran. And this is a type of exodus. It's a type of exodus that foreshadows aspects of the exodus out of Egypt. That's the, the major salvation event of the Old Testament in the book of Exodus when God led the nation of Israel out of slavery, out of bondage in the land of Egypt to be His people, to lead them out to worship Him. We'll get to a little bit more on that in just a bit. But before this Exodus happens here with Jacob, we see another episode where Laban tries to swindle Jacob. Now Jacob's requested to leave, but Laban has an interest in Jacob staying around. He understands that God has blessed him with the very presence of Jacob. You can see there at the end of verse 27 that Laban realized that, that the Lord has blessed me because of you. And in verse 27, Laban mentions that he learned this through divination, which shows that he was a pagan. It's a pagan practice of, of summoning evil spirits to try to gain knowledge. And you may wonder, why is that there? I think that's there just to show us that Laban didn't share Jacob's faith. Now, he didn't need divination. He didn't need that kind of pagan practice to see what was so obvious that God had blessed Jacob. If you really wanted to know why Jacob was so blessed, he simply could have talked to his son-in-law and asked him, hey, what's going on? I notice everywhere you go, there's prosperity. Tell me about that. So that divination, it's, it's worthless. But well, Laban, he wants Jacob to stick around, and so he asks in verse 31, what shall I give you? Because he sees another opportunity to make a deal. So they strike up this deal, and you may wonder what's going on here with these spotted and speckled sheep and goats, kind of the deal they struck. Well, I'm sure that, that Laban, he loved this idea of what they kicked up there. And here's why. Sheep are typically what color? White. And goats in that time typically were dark brown or, or black. Now, now, typically, from what I read this week, a shepherd would command a 20% commission for their labor. 20% of the flock would become there. So think about 20% of a flock versus this deal for the spotted and speckled and, and striped lambs and goats. I'm sure Laban was elated with this offer. It'd be like going on to Independence Boulevard and one of the owners of a car lot there telling you, if you come and work six years for me, you can have any car on the lot that's purple. And if you have a purple car, I'm sure you love it. No shade there. I'm just saying there's probably not a lot in stock, right? So it would sound like a great deal. You work for six years and any car that's purple, you pick it out. It sounded like a great deal for Laban. So I imagine he was elated with this. Now even so, Laban in verse 35 tries to secure his own interest. He goes and he removes all of the spotted and striped and speckled animals and takes them far away so they don't reproduce there in the flock, which, which sets the stage for this to be clear that Jacob's fortune came only from God. 
In verse 37, we see an, an odd scene. Again, there's a couple odd things in this passage, like what is going on with these sticks he's laying out, poplar sticks. I mean, in the last chapter, we saw mandrakes. Now we see poplar sticks, and they're being laid out here. Well, the, these sticks, they're really like a kind of superstition. Jacob didn't need to use those sticks, and those sticks have no value in producing the type of animal he was hoping to receive. So it's not drinking in front of these sticks or the animals breeding in front of these sticks that would produce these types of animals for Jacob. It's almost like he's operating thinking that God needs a little bit of help in securing this deal. I'll help out a little bit with this superstitious practice of these sticks. But no, we see that God Himself would provide. The result there in verse 43, thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Now, if you stopped reading right here in chapter 30, you may think, wow, those poplar sticks worked. Amazing. I had no idea that sticks could do that in the breeding practices of animals. But when you go on to the next chapter, which we'll get to in chapter 31, verses 9 through 12, you see Jacob elaborate a little bit more, that, that God himself had come to him in a dream. And it said that, that God was the one was it, who was at work to cause these animals to produce. It wasn't the sticks. There was no mistake among Jacob. God was the one at work to bring these animals into existence. God was at work for Jacob's prosperity. Laban tried to make Jacob poor, for him to leave empty-handed. Laban tried to oppress Jacob, but God intervenes, makes him wealthy, and causes him to prosper. In other words, God blessed Jacob in spite of his tricks, not because of them. God's blessing is always all of grace. God's blessing, not Jacob's schemes, caused the flock to prosper. Well, for those who put our faith in, in Jesus, we can trust God to provide for us, to provide for our material needs. He's already provided for our spiritual needs, the greatest need we have of the forgiveness of sin. Certainly, Him providing for our material needs, like being able to pay our rent or mortgage or being able to put food on the table, we can turn to the Lord and ask Him to provide. Well, I wonder how often you may find yourself trying to manufacture God's blessing in your life. You know, I wonder how often do you try to give God a little bit of help, kind of like Jacob was. Like, God, I know you've promised this, but I'm, I'm going to give you a little bit of help with my own wisdom, with my own discipline, with my own steadfastness. Well, God's blessing is all of grace. Blessings aren't created by us. They're received by us, created by God, a gift to us. God's blessing all of grace, not by our own effort. Well, I wonder, brother and sister in the Lord, how often do you acknowledge that whatever material prosperity God has given you has come from the Lord and not from your personal abilities? You may even think this morning, well, I'm a college student, I'm broke, I don't have much in my account. Well, you've got the opportunity that very few people in the history of mankind have had to receive such a quality education. And God's provided for you to be in college. You may not have much in your bank account right now, but God's provided for you richly an opportunity to study, an opportunity many people would love to have. I wonder how often it is that you turn and you thank God for those material blessings. That's a humbling practice that confesses all that we have, we've received. 
We may think much about our own personal abilities, our own intellect, our own strength, our own decision-making ability, but who is it that's given us the ability physically to get out of bed each morning, the ability intellectually to think, the discernment that God gives that allows us to make wise and good decisions as tested by His Word. Whatever success you have, it has come from the Lord. Now, you may hear the word prosperity, and you may think immediately of material prosperity. That's certainly a type of prosperity, but we need to be clear, God has not promised all of His people material prosperity. Just consider our brothers and sisters around the globe right now. Think about our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine right now. There is not material prosperity that's happening there. There are people who are worshiping God and trusting Him there today who are surrounded by horrific evil. God's not promised us all material prosperity. In fact, God blesses His people with different levels of material blessing, with possessions and, and money, with the type of house that we live in. Whatever it is that God has chosen to give us, and in particular in this season, we can know that it's come from God, and we can thank Him for it, and we can seek to be good stewards of that blessing, living for His glory, to serve others with whatever God has chosen to bless us with. And while there's no promise that material wealth will come to those who have faith in Jesus, we can trust God to provide for our material needs. They're not unimportant. Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter 6. He tells His followers not to be anxious about material needs like food or drink or clothing, but rather to trust the care of our Father in heaven. Now, while God has not promised material blessing and prosperity to all of His people, He does promise spiritual prosperity to every single believer. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, there is a promise that was made yours at the moment of your conversion, that the work that God Himself began in you, He Himself would complete it, meaning the blessing is that you will persevere by God's grace. You will finish the race of faith. Whenever you die, you will cross the finish line, or if Christ comes first, race over, preserve, persevering by God's grace. That's a promise that we can count on. In Ephesians chapter 1, we read of this promise of spiritual prosperity where every believer has received every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I would encourage you to go read through those blessings in chapter 1 a rich and beautiful description of how richly God has blessed His people through the redemption of Jesus Christ, His blood shed for us. You see, the greatest blessing is not a big house. The greatest blessing is not a marriage and a family and a white picket fence and a nice 401k. Those are blessings to be sure. And if God has given that to you, you can thank Him for that material blessing. Just don't build your life upon it. The greatest blessing we can know is the spiritual blessing of knowing God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Those who are in Christ have put their faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've had our sins forgiven. We were far off, spiritually dead, blind, 
all through the grace of God, He's made us alive in Jesus Christ. It's the greatest blessing you can possibly know. So if anyone tells you that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you'll know health and wealth and prosperity, you can know that is an American gospel. It's not the biblical gospel. We look at the biblical gospel, the greatest blessing is knowing Jesus Christ. Nothing can take that away from you. No recession can take that away from you. No trial or difficulty can take that blessing away from you. Even being surrounded by the horrors of war like our brothers and sisters in Ukraine are, it can't take away the spiritual blessing of knowing God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What that tells us, pursue that blessing. Don't pursue the American dream. Pursue uh, pursue what is biblically true of knowing God. There's no greater value, the surpassing value, Philippians chapter 3, that the Apostle Paul pointed to was knowing God, knowing Jesus and what God has done in Jesus. Well, for those who are in Christ, that's how we can have joy in the midst of a trial. So looking here at Jacob's trial, how is it that we can have joy in trials? It's that we know God. We, we walk with God. We know His love for us. We can trust that He cares for us and that He will provide for us. And it's often that we grow spiritually during these times of trial and difficulty. It's actually during those times that God causes us to spiritually prosper. Again, as I read J.C. Ryle this week, he had these helpful words on trials. Trial, to speak plainly, is the instrument by which our Father in heaven makes Christians more holy. By trial, He weans them from the world, draws them to Christ, drives them to the Bible and prayer, shows them their own hearts, and makes them humble. Never hardly did we find an eminent saint, either in the Old Testament or the New, who was not purified by suffering, and like his master, a man of sorrows. Brother and sister in the Lord, in every trial, cast your mind back to that blessing that came to you by God's grace at the moment of conversion, the blessing and the joy of knowing the God who created you, of having your sins forgiven and being made right with Him and being brought into a relationship with Him that will last for the rest of this life and evermore in the next life. Be reminded that God is with you blessing you to prosper spiritually, and that everything else in life will be taken care of as He sees fit. Well, a second way that God blesses His people in trials is there in chapter 31, verses 1 through 21. A second way that God blesses His people in trials, God bless it, God's blessing brings perseverance. God's blessing brings perseverance. Let me read for us chapter 31, verses 1 through 21. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. 
And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. And the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan, to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. This chapter begins the exodus of Jacob and his family out of the foreign land of Paddan Aram and back to the promised land. This chapter, it's a a bit of a preview for what we'll see in the book of Exodus. That's where God's people were led by Moses in their exodus out of Egypt on their way to the promised land. Now, in the book of Exodus, the descendants of Jacob, they multiplied and they grew to such a large number in Egypt that Pharaoh felt threatened. Well, here in chapter 31, Jacob's family is multiplying. His fortune is growing in Padnerim. And as he grows and multiplies and gains wealth, he starts to lose favor with Laban and his family. Now, before the exodus out of Egypt, Israel plundered the Egyptians, and then they fled from Pharaoh who pursued them. Here in chapter 31 with Jacob, he, before he leaves, he does a type of plundering with Laban's goods, and he ends up fleeing from Laban as Laban pursues him. So what we see here is, is Jacob's exodus, out of the land belonging to Laban and headed back to the land that was promised. Now Jacob deciding to leave and go back to the promised land is prompted in two ways there in verses 1 through 3. First, we see in verse 2, the Laban's family, they, they became jealous of Jacob's wealth, and he realizes that he's fallen out of favor with Laban. But ultimately, the reason why Jacob left is that the Lord told him to. Look at verse 3. Again, we see the Lord appear to Jacob, and the Lord told him, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. He left because God told him to. Now, the command to return, it came with a promise. At the end of verse 3, I will be with you. Not a new promise, a repeating of a promise that had already been given to Jacob. Jacob needed to be reminded of the promise. Think about this in your life. We need ongoing, regular, daily reminders of that simple promise that in Jesus, God has promised to be with us. That's the strength that we'll find in every trial and every difficulty. Every time that we fear, we can be reminded God is with us in Christ. 
Well, just like Moses and Israel received protection from the Lord and their exodus out of Egypt, Jacob, he received again God's promise of protection to leave. Laban didn't want him to leave. He wasn't going to make it easy on them. Jacob could only get out with the Lord's help. Now, God called Jacob to return to the land, and we see in verse 4, Jacob moved forward in obedience. Now, Jacob's faith is maturing. We've been seeing this in Genesis. His faith is still not yet complete, but in this chapter, we finally see Jacob presented in a positive light. He hears God's word, and he obeys. God was at work strengthening his faith. He hears God's word, and he obeys. That's a sign of maturity in the Christian life, that you hear the word of the Lord, you have a desire to obey God's word, and that you start to see visible fruit in your life of obedience to God's word. That's assurance that the Spirit of God is at work in us, helping us to grow in obedience to Jesus, to grow as His disciples in the truth. Jacob hears God's word, he obeys, and immediately he calls for Rachel and Leah. Now, if he's going to go home, if he's going to go home and return there, he first needs to convince his wives to lead their home. I keep saying wives. I can't go into every week about why polygamy is wrong. It's wrong. Go back and listen last week, a couple weeks before. It's wrong. So if this is your first week here, we don't think polygamy is okay, and that's not what Moses is commending here in this chapter. It's a mess, but God's at work over all this mess. He calls Rachel and Leah out there, and Jacob, he lays out his case for how God has blessed him and caused him to prosper. So he speaks of how he faithfully served Laban, yet Laban has dealt unfairly with him and cheated him. And while he speaks of the deceit of their father, he points out the sovereignty of God over all of it. God was at work during the whole trial. And what we see in this speech is a contrast between what Laban was doing and what God was doing the whole time. He's contrasting, here's what your father did, like here's what father-in-law did, here's what father in heaven was doing the whole time. Look at the contrast in verse 5. Laban no longer regards Jacob with favor. So I've fallen out of favor with Laban. But look at the end of verse 5. We see what God was doing. But the God of my father has been with me. Fallen out of favor with Laban, but not with God. God's with me. Again, the contrast in verse 7. Uh, your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. And then look at the contrast at what God was doing the whole time. But God did not permit him to harm me. Laban trying to hurt me, God would not permit him to ultimately harm me. God was at work the whole time, working for my prosperity. Again, in verse 8, we read that Laban was trying to give Jacob a, a raw deal thinking that if he committed to give Jacob the spotted or striped sheep, that there would be very few to give away. But look at what God was doing in verse 9. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Laban tried to cheat him, but God was at work the whole time. It's not like God came and cleaned things up. He's saying God was at work the entire time. It's not like God took some time off. Laban was working, and then God stepped up, and he started working. What he's saying is that God was sovereign at work the entire time. What man intended to harm me and to be evil, God was working for my good. He's faithful. That's the Christian's confidence. God cares. He sees. He's faithful. He fulfills his promise. 
He hears his people as we cry out to him. He knows exactly what we're feeling, and he never stops working for his glory and for the good of his people. All of the years of mistreatment, all the time in that trial, God was at work in all of it. And God used those years of hardship as the very pathway to unfold his plan. Well, Christian, I wonder what trial you're going through. We know in James chapter 1 that trials are various kinds. It could be a big trial. It could be a small trial. It could be one that's common. It could be one that's uncommon. Physical trials, relational trials, spiritual trials, financial trials. I wonder what trial it is that you're coming in this morning facing and experiencing. I wonder what God's doing in that. We don't know. We can look back and we can see as God gives us grace to persevere through those trials. But what we can know, we might not know specifically, what's God doing? How's He going to use this to bring Himself glory and for my good? How's He going to increase my joy in Him and grow me? I don't know, but I do know God's at work. He's faithful. And I can come to Him in prayer and ask Him for the grace and strength to remain steadfast in the trial. We don't celebrate trials. We celebrate God's grace to persevere through those trials. He is enough for His people. Well, as Jacob continues to make his case, he recounts in verse 11, when the angel of God, who is God Himself, appeared to him in a dream. In that dream, he confirmed what he said earlier in verse 9, that God was the one at work to cause him to prosper. God was the one behind the breeding of the flock and bringing forth prosperity for Jacob. And in verse 13, God reminded him in this dream of his vow that he made at Bethel back in chapter 28, that he would return to the land and serve God. Well, after hearing all of this, Rachel and Leah finally agree on something. They're ready to go. They're ready to follow Jacob where it is that he is leading them. They're willing to leave their family They're willing to leave their homeland just like Rebecca before them. And it seems from their words in verse 16 that they're trusting God. They believe that God has caused their husband to prosper and not their father Laban. And they support him in in following whatever God has said. And that may be confusing when the last thing we read that Rachel does before she leaves is to steal her father's household gods or idols. You may have looked and said, household goods? No, it's household gods. Like, what is that about? And why did she make time to take those before they left, seeing as they were in a hurry? I don't know. I think it's unclear why she took those idols. I read a number of different scholars speculating this week, and they all speculated and said, I don't know. They could have, these idols could have been connected to fertility. Some suggest that she took these idols out of spite to her father, uh, some suggest maybe she was not that confident about leaving and was still trusting in false gods. Uh, some say the idols were connected to her being an heir of her father's property. Well, whatever the reason was that she took them, the way it plays a factor in the story is that it makes it more difficult for them to exit the land. It ends up being a, a reason, a motivating reason for Laban to pursue them, which would provide another difficult and dangerous decision that God would deliver them from. Again, brothers and sisters, hardships and difficulties are often the backdrop in the lives of a Christian through which God's blessing shines. 
That's why in the New Testament book of James, in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God's Word trains Christians to think about trials in a new way, to count it all joy when you, when you meet them. In other words, our goal as Christians is not to avoid trials. Our goal as Christians is to know God, to love Him more, to, to, to walk more closely with Him. I wonder how often you try to avoid trials rather than seek God's help in them. You see, godliness comes in and through those trials, not by avoiding them. And because of that, Christians can think differently about trials than anyone else can. We can know God's sovereign over every trial, meaning trials are typically where we feel out of control, but trials are never out of God's control. And God uses those difficulties and that suffering to accomplish His purposes, and He blesses His people even in the midst of those trials. Well, a third and final way that God blesses His people in trials, we see in verses 22 through 55, God's blessing brings peace. God's blessing brings peace. Let me read for us Genesis 31, starting in verse 22. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you've tricked me and, driven me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you have longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? And Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, and into Leah's tent, and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt, about, felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you. 
Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was by the day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. The God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side. Surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day? These my daughters are for their children whom they have borne. Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jigar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Gilead. Laban said this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Gilead and Mizpah, for he said, The Lord watch between you and me, when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor and the God of, the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Jacob got a three-day head start as Laban managed to take off during a strategic time. Laban was out in the field shearing sheep, busiest time for a shepherd farmer. He would have been out busy, unaware of what was going on. And it took 10 days, therefore, for Laban to pursue him and to finally catch Jacob. And when he caught him, we see in verse 23, it was in the hill country of Gilead. From the hills of Gilead, you could visibly see the promised land. He's almost home, almost there, and Laban catches him. Just as Jacob was in the home stretch, he gets captured. But look at verse 24. We see this familiar phrase in Scripture, but God. But God came to Laban there, me in a dream by night, and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Laban was coming to do him harm, but God intervened. He protected Jacob just like he had promised. Now, in the exodus out of Egypt, God protected Moses and Israel at the Red Sea. Here in Jacob's exodus, just as Jacob was inside of the promised land, God appeared and stopped Laban from doing him any harm. And Laban himself acknowledges this in verse 29. He's saying, I would hurt you, but the God of your father stopped me. Laban only had as much power as God would allow. Now, while Laban is kept by God from harming Jacob, he launches into his complaint against Jacob, and we see in verse 30 what he wants. Why did you steal my gods? He wants his idols back. And Jacob was not aware that Rachel took them, 
And he makes things worse when he unknowingly places her under the threat of death. As he says in verse 32, anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. And while Laban tore tents apart looking for these idols, notice what keeps him from discovering them. Rachel hid them in a camel saddle and sat on them. And we see in verse 35 she gets away with it, saying that she can't stand up because the way of women is upon me. I read a couple scholars say this week, this is a little bit of a, a, little bit of a comedy of showing how worthless these idols really are, how worthless these false gods are. One scholar had this to say, they were worth, worthless gods for a woman sat on them during her menstrual period are as unclean as can be. In this new position, they come near functioning as sanitary towels. I don't say that to make you laugh like middle schoolers. I say that to point to this was a worthless God, filthy to worship untrue God. There's a little bit of a wordplay and an image given there of just how worthless these idols and false gods were. Laban thought they were of great value, hotly pursuing them, worthy of just being tossed out and thrown away in the trash. With Laban unable to find his idols, Jacob launches into another speech in verses 36 through 42. He's angry. He recounts all the wrong that Laban had done to him. In verse 41, he points to Laban saying, I I served you for 20 years, seven for Leah, seven for Rachel, six years for the flock. And he concluded in verse 42, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, Surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. Jacob's prosperity and his fortune was not due to Laban. Laban would have sent him away with nothing, but God's gracious hand provided for him. What more can Laban say? He doesn't have anything to say. He gives up in verse 44, and he proposes a a peace covenant. Think about this. He, He came chasing after him to do him harm, God intervened, protected Jacob and his family, and now Laban is, Laban is proposing a peace covenant. What's interesting about this is that Jacob didn't need a peace treaty. He had a promise of peace from God. God himself was the treaty he needed. God said, I will, I will protect you, I will give you peace. That's all he needed. Laban was the one who wanted a treaty. And what this treaty did, it formally changed the relationship. For 20 years, Jacob had served Laban. Now Laban's proposing a peace treaty. When you do that, it acknowledges someone else is superior. 20 years later, he's acknowledging, Jacob, you are stronger than I am. You are mightier than I am. I need a peace treaty to secure my future. It was a picture of God's sovereignty, of humbling Jacob those 20 years, and then exalting him in a way that was appropriate as God's chosen vessel of blessing. Furthermore, this treaty would keep Laban away from him and give him distance, distance to serve God and to worship him. And with the covenant sealed with sacrifice in a meal in verse 54, the chapter closes with Laban kissing his family goodbye and departing. Twenty long years, years of hardship and oppression, yet God was at work the whole time fulfilling his promise, working out his plan. God is faithful to preserve his people and lead them to peace. Well, Jacob's exodus, it looked forward 
to the Exodus we see in the book of Exodus, the next book of the Bible, Moses leading the nation of Israel and their Exodus out of Egypt. There God's people were set free from the sin and slavery of a foreign land of Egypt as the Lord himself led them out. The Exodus, again, was the major salvation event of the Old Testament, and it looked forward to the major salvation event of the New Testament, which is the salvation event of the entire Bible, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is an exodus that we can find in Jesus. There's an exodus that you must find in Jesus that can only be found in Him. He is the only one who can lead you out of slavery to sin and death and bondage to Satan himself. Jesus accomplished all that is needed for us to escape the slavery of sin and death by sending Jesus to die on the cross. The third day, God raised him from the dead that all who would put their faith in Jesus and follow him are set free from sin, fully forgiven, free to live a life of worship and service to God, free from the enemy being able to ultimately be victorious over us. Try as he may to prevail against the gates of, against the church, the gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus says, he will build his church. And for those who are in Christ, we have not yet arrived in the promised land. Charlotte is not the promised land. Your job is not the promised land. A wife or a husband and kids is not the promised life. A nice job in the tower uptown is not when you'll finally have arrived. For all those who are in Christ, we are headed for a land that will last forever. Ultimately, this land and the end of Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth. And until we finally arrive in that land by God's grace, we have the promise that God will bless us. He will cause us to spiritually prosper. He will cause us to persevere. He will give us the peace we need in this life to worship Him and ultimate and final peace in the next. Brother and sister, may we live today in light of that day. And until that day, may we seek strength that comes from the Lord to walk by faith. Let's pray.